0: Hello and welcome back to the Out of Hours podcast. I hope you're doing well. Before we start, I'm excited to introduce our sponsor for this episode. This episode is sponsored by Tribe. Tribe is now one of the UK's leading plant-based nutrition brands and they've got a community of over 100,000 everyday athletes. Tribe creates delicious, all-natural plant-based snacks, which are also gluten-free. And they're giving Out of Hours listeners a very special discount. You can get your first pack of six of their nutrition bars for just £2, which includes shipping. Head to wearetribe.co slash outofhours and use the code TRIBEOUTOFHOURS, which is all one word. I'll leave a link in the show notes and let me know if you check it out.
1: Tipped pretty close to the edge. And what followed was three to six months of like rebuild, rebuild the team. Ultimately, the business is in a far better state now. But yeah, it was a pretty dark moment. I used to to, uh, to wake up screaming in the middle of the night.
0: Welcome to the Out of Hours podcast, the podcast for people who are creating things they think should exist in the world. I'm Georgia Ritter, founder of outofhours.org, the community for people with side projects. Over the last year, I've been spending my time exploring how to help more people progress the ideas that they're interested in. I believe that everyone has a great idea. And working on things we care about can help us be more creative, more resilient and more confident. But there are barriers that stop us from starting. Sometimes time, money or network, but also self-belief. Not knowing where to start and wondering what other people might think. On this show, I'll explore the stories of people who have followed their curiosity, been brave, and started a side project, only to turn it into something much bigger than they ever thought possible. I'll explore the stories of nonprofits, businesses, creative projects, and social movements to understand the practical first steps they took, the doors these small ideas can open, and the magic that happens when you start taking your own ideas seriously. Today on the podcast, we have Stu McDonald, founder of the peanut butter brand Manny Life, whose website reads We make the tastiest peanut butter on the planet. Inspired by a trip to Argentina and armed with less than a year's professional experience, Manny Life's story started in Stu's home kitchen in 2015 when he was training to be an auditor. Manny Life has seen a meteoric rise in the last few years. They've run a successful crowdfunding round. They've won multiple Great Taste Awards. They've been recommended by celebrities like Joe Wicks and Ella Mills of Deliciously Ella. And they've been stocked in major retailers like Waitrose and Sainsbury's. We talk about both the practical things like how to get into retailers and why he thinks influence marketing might be overrated and also how to run a successful crowdfunding campaign. And we also talk about his journey along the way, why it's hard being a sole founder when he decided to go full time and how one of his biggest product successes came from failure. I hope you enjoy. Your story is really amazing. And, you know, the last five years, you've sort of had quite phenomenal success. The reason I think your story is so interesting is and so relevant, I think, for this podcast is that I just think so many people go, go on holiday, put themselves in a new scenario and a new headspace and think, oh, would it be cool if this existed? Or, oh, I could import this fabric and do this. People have so many ideas when they're away and so few people actually bring them to life. And you, I think, did that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? It's one of the things that I, and this is maybe a bit cynical, but one of the things that I that I realized as I got into the food and beverage space in particular, but like entrepreneurship, is before I kind of started up a business, I always had this, I had this theory that like entrepreneurship was like a social equalizer. And it was like anyone could go out and be an entrepreneur. But what I found is like the vast majority of people who start businesses is people who, if it all went to shit they're lucky enough to be able to move home and like live with mum and dad for like basically no rent. It's a really interesting thing because one of the reasons why I got like the jolt jolt to take it from like a part-time thing to like a proper thing was like, when I realized that like, holy shit, I'm so, so lucky for that to be the case. And if I can't go and like try something a bit risky or a bit, interesting Then who can so yeah the the gap the gap year business story is quite a popular one
0: yeah well i think it's it makes sense because you're outside of the daily grind and Mm. i believe that everyone has good ideas and is able to come up with interesting ideas based on their own experience and i think yeah as you say like the opportunity to build that into a business massively varies depending on my current theory is like money network self-belief and time yeah One of the reasons I like side projects so much, I mean, there's loads of reasons, but one of the reasons I like them is because it is more of an equaliser than full-time.
1: Yeah, for sure. You're completely right.
0: It's not totally accessible to everyone. Like, you know, if you're doing a a job that requires loads of physical labour, for example, or loads of long hours, or you don't really have enough money to give you any sense of kind of headspace or risk profile or whatever, that is not 100%, but I think it is more accessible than going full-time.
1: Yeah, for sure. And the really interesting thing is the kind of rare occasions where people do set up businesses that don't have that safety net, it's it's people who have taken the the kind of like side project hustle to the point where like they're literally about to break. And then and at that point, they can just about take out enough money from the business to be able to, to kind of survive. Mm. I think what you're doing is amazing because unless unless you've done it loads of times before, like the idea of starting a business up when you don't have something on the, when you don't have a job on the side is crazy. And it goes back to that point of like you fill the time you have. And at the beginning, like you're figuring out so much stuff. Like I'm not sure Manny Life would have grown faster in the first six months. Or you probably wouldn't have grown slower if I'd had all day every day. Cause I was just like, I had no idea what I was doing. But I, I knew enough to fill the like two hours before work and the three hours after work.
0: Manny Life started officially in 2015 but when did it really start
1: it's funny we kind of like never had a launch and and i'll get onto that in a second but ultimately the seeds of mani life started growing when i got offered a job as an accountant at a company called pwc i didn't really fancy it so i decided that i would move to Argentina with the idea being that I would go there and basically build up enough guilt to become an accountant and that was in the summer of 2014 so I just graduated from Bristol and when I arrived there I stumbled into working for a peanut butter social enterprise I met this guy called Chris Sorrentino and Gumtree and went to meet him he's doing quite cool things I used I helped him out and um, we used to go around soup kitchens basically teaching kids and families how to use peanut butter and in that process, developed more of a passion for business that I kind of always had to some extent, but also developed a passion that I'd never had for peanut butter. It was magic. started making my own like little recipes and makes uh, Vitamix in Palermo, selling to like, people on Facebook. and then I eventually tracked down a farm in Cordoba, thinking that we could maybe take this a bit further, went to meet them, and that was like the first. Like, kind of holy shit moment. Because I met them, like, absolutely loved them, and began to understand that their product was amazing. And, and it was kind of similar to kind of coffee and chocolate in the sense that like ingredients mattered. And I looked at the market back home and saw that this was maybe Jan 2015. Looked at the market, saw that whilst it was growing really fast, no one was speaking about peanut butter the same way you speak about coffee, chocolate, wine. There was no, there was no provenance to it. So I came home in kind of April 2015. With the idea of starting a provenance led peanut butter brand, imported the first ton of peanuts and they arrived in june 2015 and that's the date we started and it was also like an absolute disaster date because the day the peanuts arrived our production partner pulled out so i had a ton of peanuts in 25 kilo bags in my bedroom with no one to make them and in that moment Basically, decided we'd have a crack, and we got to get about forty-five friends. Bought two little blenders, and we spent that entire summer making four thousand jars of peanut butter, one jar at a time. And whilst it was like hell because it was, just, I was getting up at like four in the morning, getting home at ten. All my friends were working for free, so it was like just riddled with guilt. So we went from being a provenance-led brand to a brand that understood the product in a way that. No other brand at that point had done. Like we, That was the we invented the deep roast. That was the we kind of got to understand blending and roasting. And it also sowed the seeds for this like community feeling that is definitely still there today.
0: Okay, so you go to Argentina. What was the reason for going to Argentina?
1: So honest answer, the women were beautiful. Uh, the food was amazing. And on that, I like loved the... The kind of energy and just appreciation for people and community they had there. It's such a cliche, but like it was a very formative year in the sense that me as a person and Manny Life as a brand, I think as well, are very open and authentic, and I believe like appreciate people for who they are. And in Argentina, that's like couldn't be truer. So, like a year I was there, no one ever asked me what I did for a living. Like all those questions that we kind of take for granted as classic small talk here it's just it's not important and like the two most consumed things in argentina are mate and barbecue and they're things that can't be consumed alone so they've they've just got this like love and appreciation and community thing just so deeply entrenched and probably the fact they've had to deal with so much crap over the last hundred years
0: i mean i have a similar thing with um mexico city there are people just trying stuff for the Mm. first time in a way that in london not a big problem to have but it is a stress i think of london where like mm. ev- when you do something everyone expects you to be really good at it from the beginning mm. and it's so competitive yeah. and it's so yeah. you know i think it's that combination mm. of it being really competitive and being really expensive which means that everything feels like it's so high stakes whereas yeah. in other cities or other places have felt like a different thing
1: yeah it's really interesting so one of, the, one of the real benefits of living in the uk is like infrastructure and um, institutions which Enables and facilitates businesses to become very big. But also, on the flip side of that, is there's quite a lot of regulation. So, starting up is like quite tricky. Argentina, it's super hard to become a big business because there's worse infrastructure, quite a lot of corruption, and red tape becomes a bit too much once you get to that level. But, like, low level business that like you can literally do whatever you want. And so, probably in the early years of, ma- or not early, early years, early months of manning life in the UK, I was kind of in that mode. So we were we were selling to stores making peanut butter out of a rubber club kitchen. And probably had I fully appreciated like that wasn't really like the done thing, maybe I wouldn't have done it. But but the whole point was is like, we didn't harm anyone. It's a pretty safe product. And it enabled us to get to a stage where it was worth, in my mind, like spending the money on I know, mean, nutritional tests and and getting a proper kitchen. We we got approached to Baycardo when I was still making in like a kitchen with mates.
0: Let's come back to that because I think your stock lists are a kind of who's who of some incredible brands. And I think it's a whole kind of chapter. I don't want to dwell on this too long, but I do just want to ask one more question about Argentina. You say that you sort of fell into an obsession with peanut butter. Often these things mm. become these like retrospective lines or it's like, yeah, exactly. peanut butter. Where did it really come from? Was it like a fascination of how it's made, or was it the business side of it?
1: So, let's think about it. I think the the true drive and passion for Manny Life, if I if I like take away the retrospective narrative, was really the people that I met, and it was like if if the farm that I'd met in Argentina made cocoa,
0: mm.
1: I'd have started a chocolate brand. I think I was very fortunate that my experience in in business was peanut butter because it's it was a great opportunity. From the product perspective, there was a genuine passion that started to build, and it was primarily the fact that one, the stuff that I'd had at home wasn't tasty, whereas this stuff was. Two, nutritionally, it's genuinely like pretty magic. I remember when we were in the soup kitchens, we try and convince kids to eat better, and it was like. Nine times out of ten, if you give a kid a chocolate bar a chocolate bar and an apple, they'll pick the chocolate bar because it's tastier, better branded, better marketed. But if you dip the peanut butter and apple, all of a sudden, taste is on par. Health is way, way better. It's a really good tool for getting kids to eat better. Peanut butter is the base ingredient for this thing called plumpy peanut, which is like the best cure for malnutrition like ever invented. Um, peanuts of the plant are like absolutely magic in the sense that they re-nitrify the soil so they've been used to help end agricultural famines in countries like Haiti. As I kind of developed more of an interest, I was very fortunate that this product that we kind of stumbled across had all these amazing things, which I think probably helped pump up the, the desire. And it was just, and one of the things about it is like, many life is here because we just like kept going. And it wasn't like we had this like master plan. And obviously in hindsight, we can put this fantastic strategy on it but really it was just like oh, this is a pretty cool product i love all these people i work with i'm growing to love all the consumers that are fed back how do i find a way to keep this going because we're in it now and then you add a team on top of that and all of a sudden you've got even more responsibility
0: so you come back from argentina your job starts in six months after that You have this kind of summer of peanut butter where all these friends come together and help you turn a bit of a disaster into something positive, but you start your job, right? You don't go full-time into peanut butter making. What was your kind of thinking behind starting that job?
1: In all honesty, Manny and I wasn't making any money because we were probably the most inefficient production house in the world ever, even though we weren't paying anyone. I had this job. I was immensely stressed. I was feeling the responsibility and and the kind of the pressure to make it something, and I actually took the job thinking that I was going to bin many life and come back to it in three years when I was qualified. What ended up happening is, and this is going back away, I bin many life, started at PwC, immediately two weeks in, started speaking about this little project that I'd done, and and realised that I was so invigorated talking about it then start getting calls from all the shops and all the consumers that we'd served over the summer. And it eventually just like, I was like, I can't not supply these guys. So I, so I'd start doing little runs with friends on the weekends. And then I started coming into the office at seven in the morning, leaving the office at 10, sometimes taking calls in like partners offices in the day to supplies as we tried to like build something up. And by kind of six to eight months of the job, I was Running M- manny life, seven part days a week and full days and weekends. Being an accountant Monday to Friday, and yeah, it it become like as you call it like a proper side project. It would a lot cooler telling people on the weekends that you made peanut butter than being an accountant. So there's a bit of an e- ego in there. There was a bit of guilt because like I'd created something that people really liked, and I was like, how can I not carry on with this?
0: So you stay as an accountant for do you say seven months?
1: 11 months and this is whenever people ask about starting businesses i always recommend having a job once you do it because it, it really like lasers your focus and i remember it was september 2016 and i walked into our like head partner's office and i was like can you give me a year to have a crack at this and if it doesn't work i'll come back because i still i still was i like, wasn't sure i was able to do it and he kind of was just like absolutely no way i quit that day, I'd forgotten that I had a month's notice to serve. So it was, I kind of was expecting this whole like dramatic, like come out of here, but then realized I had to stay for a month. So it's quite embarrassing.
0: I know this is a long time ago, but I think it's really useful for people who are in this indecision because it's often in, in some ways the hardest part because you're kind of turning yeah. down some security, some like prestige, I guess, from training at PWC. Yeah, where was Manny Life at at that stage? So you said you were having these calls with retailers. Yeah. How, what kind of stage was that How much was it making?
1: The short answer is not very much, but I could tell that the potential was really there. So we got a call that summer from Ricardo asking us to come in and pitch, and I was like, "Yeah, no worries, well, course." Cool. So and then obviously arrived, and it became it became immediately obvious uh, that we weren't ready. Uh, ready for them. But the buyer, I still remember the buyer's name is called Charlie Hacker. He still works right. at Ocado. And we failed at the pitch and actually took us, I think it was three years to get back in. So that was like a, holy shit, if Ocado were calling us and we're in a k- tiny kitchen, like there's obviously something here. From a sales perspective, I think we were turning over like two grand a month. And from a like hours and time perspective, it was just all encompassing. I sometimes feel a bit bad about my last few months at pwc i think i probably took the piss a bit like i was taking calls with with stores in like in the office just like in the hallway but they were ultimately really supportive in the end
0: before it kind of became this crazy thing that took over do you think it impacted your perform your job performance
1: it's funny i think in a lot of ways it made it better so i worked in audit which is popularly known as like one of the most boring dry sectors of any job and what usually happens for grads and audit is they'll go have these like tick box conversations with the client and then go off and fill out the forms but because i was going into it trying to learn about how to run a business and understood a bit about like what debtors and what payables and what all the kind of business stuff meant at my scale it meant i had far more meaningful conversations and especially when I was speaking to people that were in my world. So I remember one of our clients was a kind of called Baxter Story that do the food for British Airways. They like a big cafe chain that, that's in a lot of offices. And I had like an hour long conversation with, with their FD about like the cost of goods they have to hit when they're supplying into schools and how they run their supply chains into cafes. I found it fascinating. But yeah, so on, on, that, on that side, it made us better. It also meant that When it hit kind of 5.30, 6.00, I was pretty adamant on leaving.
0: I'm a big believer in like output versus hours. And I think, you know, just because you're leaving at 6.00, if your work is good and you're engaged when you're there, it's actually much better than having people who are like half there until 10 p.m. Let's move on to the retailers, because that is a amazing achievement that you've done. So, Because you, you started, as I say, in 2015. Now you are stocked in Waitrose stores, Ocado, Amazon, Holland and Barrett. Who else am I missing?
1: Uh, Sainsbury's, most recent one. And don't forget the hundreds of independents that like got us going. Yes. I often name a few of them and then realize that that leaves somebody off the list. I'm not going to do that. But they're still the kind of first 10 stores we launched it to. Up until super recently were like our most had our highest sales per like square meter in in the UK because of those like first ten, we just invested so much time in them.
0: For those first ones, because I think they're always the most interesting. So again, thinking about you going from sort of making it in the with your blender in the kitchen, how did you get the attention of the first ever stockist?
1: (laughs) The first ever stockist was a organic bakery in Windsor. It came about because I was trying to get a pitch at Barnes Market, and markets are actually really hard to get pitched at. You don't realise this when you're when you're starting, but like the much is much harder to get a pitch at market than it is to get into a, a wee store. And I remember going up, and it just so happened that the boss of the bakery was there because his employee hadn't turned up, and pitched him there. I'll will send you a picture of of the first like display we did, but I remember we get into a store, I would do a sampling session, and obviously it's just like like completely overwhelmed with passion so used to do quite well you might not know this but there's a very famous new zealand rugby player called Zinzan Brooke. and he was the second guy who i sold a jar of my life to, uh, and it was at the store
0: so they were your first kind of independent stockist and then so i guess that was quite an exciting moment because
1: super exciting it was <laughs> awesome
0: and then, so how did you go about reaching other ones? Because I know that, you know, lots of people have product-based side projects. That's something that they're kind of thinking about doing. Are there any tips that you would give people who are looking to get into retailers?
1: The the bigger retailers, and I guess bigger by bigger, they, there's, there's differences of scale. With the, the biggest, you've got the kind of big fours, so that's Tesco, Morris, so that's Sainsbury's, and then you've got like a Waitrose comes in, one below, and then you've got the the kind of classics like Holland Barrett, Accardo, and then you've got the kind of brand builders like Selfridges, Whole Foods. Um, we didn't start working with the upper tier of retailers for a good like couple of years. We built out our independent trade to like a fairly substantial business, literally kind of feet on the streets. Usually, what you do is you supply into a wholesaler, and they distribute to loads of stores. But we only started supplying to wholesalers a year and a half, two years in. We had two hundred independent stores that we would deliver to via like DPD, and that was literally feet on the streets, go meet them, sell them, run sampling sessions. And because the product was so good, just word of mouth played a really strong part. The first kind of bigger stores we got into were Holland and Barrett, which from the outside, seems like a really big deal, but often the first deals we did with those guys were just terrible deals for us. Because we spent so long like, independent trade, we had enough like case studies to take to these guys. I think it would have been very different and is very different for many where you we were going straight into like, the Sainsbury's and trying to pitch this idea they don't really have proof for.
0: So with Holland and Barrett, using that one as your first, I guess, like recognised or national store distribution, what was your pitch like?
1: we got our foot in the door because one of the Leicester Tigers rugby team really liked Manny Life and Holden Barrett at the time um, sponsored Leicester. So we got introduced to Peter Aldis, who was the boss at the time. And I remember we walked in the door and like immediately you could just tell like it was a bit cold. And ultimately... Throughout the pitch, she warmed up. She's still there by now. She's a lovely woman called Hannah Lee. We basically created this kind of concept that Manny Life was the trade-up option. And once people try Manny Life, they trade up. And because we're a premium brand, it's better for retailers if more people buy us. It went well. Just the negotiation afterwards wasn't so good. But we've managed to sort that
0: negotiation comes down to leverage right and if you're just starting out you don't have a huge amount of leverage yeah any tips of like if you were doing it again would you do it differently in any way
1: mm, it's hard to say right because that because now we have more leverage and now i know what I, I didn't know then i think you probably always have more than you think because if you've got that far they want you and it's also important to and I have to remind myself of this now, that they're all pretty well-trained and it's also kind of a game. And I remember I used to take it so personally and sometimes I still do take it personally. But the big thing that a mentor of mine told me, you've got the sale when you're selling and then you've got the negotiation. And it's really important that when you're negotiating, you're not selling because the sale's kind of done. And these guys, these guys will know that because they've all been trained in it. But I was like a 25-year-old.
0: Was it just you when you were doing this or had you built a team at this point?
1: I had, so Manny Life for the first kind of year and a half was supported almost entirely by volunteers. We had this kind of legion we, call, we used to call the Manny Lifers. That was probably more stressful than having employees because I was like paying them with like love and favours and attention and stuff like that. I think when Holland Barrett happened, we had one lady who was part-time and I think an ops person. They were they were all super vital. I probably grew the team later than I would do now, I, but it was just because I was really aware that we didn't have any money. I think if to, if I was to do it again, I'd go and find the money and and grow the team because it took several years to like unravel all the kind of departments that had formed in my head, and that's kind of a key tip I would say for people starting out, even if it is just you doing everything structure it in your brain in a way where you're splitting your job into departments, because it becomes much easier for when you do hire an ops director or when you do hire a, a marketing manager to like hand over that part of your brain.
0: And I guess it's like your vision, which I think people struggle with as well It's like, but wait, no one, you know, with, I guess, what's the word, like delegating, people find it difficult because they think, oh, you can't do it like me. But if you're specific about what the roles are and like what the jobs are, Probably a bit easier, right?
1: Yeah, and like that's something that people, I mean, yeah, I'm definitely still learning getting better at even now. One of the big lessons of the last few years is tell people where you want to go and what it looks like. Don't tell them how to do it because they'll, they'll probably know a better way.
0: Thinking about your the many lifers, so that could be looked upon badly in the sense of, you know, like volunteers for a for-profit business and sometimes people can even if they're like friends or, you know, part of a community, people can worry about kind of getting people involved without paying them. What was your kind of thinking around that?
1: Few th- probably three things. One, we never expected anyone to do anything and we never asked or do something that I wouldn't do. It was very much like they came on board because they were impassioned by what we were building and they wanted to be there. Two, although we... Were and are a for-profit business. We've only just become remotely profitable, and we were very much a a loss a loss-making business for the first like four years. Ultimately, I think everyone, when they're starting out, because you don't have money, has to rely on favors, and it's just like what what can you give in kind? And and it sounds so corny, but like I gave a lot of love. And product and experience. The third thing, which is interesting, is so when we raise money, and when I got a loan from a, a bank to kind of take us out of the immediate cash stress situation, I wanted to pay them, and it was really interesting because the reaction wasn't necessarily what you'd expect. A lot of them kind of almost took offence to being offered money, and it's, it was really interesting. Money and work. Sometimes has this kind of inadvertent effect where because it was almost like because no one was being paid, no one thought it was as work, as work and it was really fun. And then as soon as it became, as money got involved, you kind of noticed there was like a switch in people's heads and it was maybe a switch in my head. You get that a lot with um, like influencer marketing. So Manny has been really fortunate to get a lot of free influencer marketing because people love the product. And for years, I was so averse to the idea of of paying anyone for it because I had all these incredible people that were doing it because they loved it and it and I, and I just didn't really sit right with me. And even now, we, we don't engage with it nearly as much as lots of our competitors kind of because of that. I was very conscious of that, which is why probably I, I was so stressed in those early days because I was just obsessed about how can I make it fun and enjoyable and worthwhile for them in a way that's not paid for, if you see what I mean.
0: Were they doing it on the side?
1: Yeah. No one worked full-time for Love. It was all like sampling sessions on the weekend or packing jars. I would never ask them to work Monday, Friday for nothing. We had interns that were kind of university students that we used to pay. They worked fairly hard. It was never like enforced labour for nothing.
0: Where, where did you find them, these people?
1: Friends of friends, customers and shows.
0: Because I feel like the climate has changed a bit, probably in the last five years. There are various businesses that still do kind of volunteer-led sections of their business that are, you know, venture-funded and have a bunch of money, but the people do it because they love it. But it has caused people saying, "You're you're making loads of money and you're and you're not paying these volunteers."
1: It's a really interesting one, isn't it? Because I guess what does it do? It, it excludes people that can't afford to not work for nothing, which I think is a serious issue. I think. It is really difficult to ignore that, but, it, but it, let's ignore that in theory for a second. I believe there is still a value exchange going on. Like, for instance, when I was working with the peanut butter social enterprise back in Argentina, he wasn't paying me anything. But from that experience, I learned enough to go on my own. And from that, end ended up here. And without, without that experience, there's no way Manny Life would exist.
0: I think a lot of people who start projects with very little money, mm-hmm. they do face this kind of almost like ethical question. Do I do this thing knowing I don't right now have any money um, and just create a fair value exchange? It's an interesting question because there's a lot of heat of people doing anything without being remunerated. And I just think it's a really interesting discussion.
1: It's also a super polemic topic, right? Because it could be construed as like inhumane. But I think it's really important to have these conversations because as with anything there's always multiple sides it caused me an immense amount of stress because I was always obsessing over how can I make this fun how can I make this enjoyable these guys are working for nothing what can we do and it's interesting because that like habit dragged into when I started paying people because the whole thing was like I'd never I'd never asked them to do something that I wasn't doing or that I wouldn't do and so what happened when we brought on our first employees is I was kind of doing stuff that probably they wouldn't even like to or should be doing because I thought it was like a a task that I wouldn't enjoy. And because because of this mindset of when I when I hadn't been paying people that I would do all the shit stuff, when I did start paying people, I was still doing a lot of the shit stuff.
0: One of the statements on your website is we make the tastiest peanut butter on the planet. Claims on like food and food and drink as a things that people worry about. Did you ever worry about it?
1: So that claim has, I guess, proved. So Great Taste Awards is like widely recognized as the objective standard and taste. We are the only peanut butter in history to ever win three Great Taste Stars from product. So I I can kind of hang our hat on that one. And also of the I don't know, 10 major publications that I've ever done peanut butter taste test I think Manny Life has topped I can't, I can't remember one that we haven't topped so I'm, I feel a lot more confident saying that ultimately there's a lot of stuff one can worry about and it's just choosing it's choosing when when and what to worry about
0: because you're a sole founder
1: right? yeah
0: how was that?
1: was very lonely at the start probably led to I think the first hires maybe were literally because I was lonely and wanted company I think without my the team I have now and without my wife, it would be horrific. But what's happened is we built the business to a, to a level where we can afford a great team. We built business to a level that attracts a great board. And I'm very fortunate to have a, a loving and supportive wife who has been a huge help. But yeah, it's super tough. One of the things that's becoming more prominent now is like mental health in business founders. And I think there have been a few pretty touchy periods off the back of stress
0: don't have to answer this but which which were kind of your hardest times
1: i mean so many the the hardest period of manny life was It's 2017 2018 we needed to do a fundraise because we were about to run out of money or running out of money in nine months that fundraise was supposed to take three months and it ended up taking nine months so that like we we went to the wire there was a stage where I was like maxed out all my credit cards. I was like borrowing money off family to plug the gap, knowing that we, the fundraiser was going to close, but it was quite scary. And then, so close the fundraiser, raised a lot of money. And off the back of like big plans that I was emotionally invested in, the week after that, where i had thought that I was going to be going back to like building the business again and going into sales, which is what I love, my ops director quit. And three of our suppliers all moved in the same week. And there was like a supply chain meltdown, which just like, I guess, took me pretty close to the edge. And what followed was three to six months of like rebuild, rebuild the team. Ultimately the business is in a far better state now, but yeah, it was a pretty dark moment. I, used to, yeah, I used, to, used to wake up screaming in the middle of the night. Gosh. Not, not every night, like a couple of times for fucking peanut butter (laughs) but that's the kind of passion that's needed i guess
0: because of the the stress of the
1: unknown i think it Mm. i'm not really sure i haven't like dissected it Mm. um but yeah it was was stressful i think probably not that rare but in the early years and to, to a great extent now but becoming less so The drive came from like a, like a fear of letting people down a fear of failure, which is like an immense motivator. Like I think one of the best motivators ever to exist, but it does, I think probably wear, wear you down. And it's also, it's not very effective motivator for, for teams. So what has kind of happened over the last year is transitioning that from being motivated by opportunity and potential, to much healthier.
0: How did you go about kind of switching your mindset in that way?
1: Still switching it. It's quite a lot of effort. A bit of meditation, mm. uh, and yeah, it's just like you kind of need to mind. The mind is quite a like powerful thing, and you, and I think it needs training. And four years, four to five years of being driven by that builds some quite like deep, scary habits. Yeah, yeah deeply entrenched habits. But ultimately, like we wouldn't be where we. The biz wouldn't be where it is today and we wouldn't have the team we have, which I'd love if it hadn't been for that drive.
0: It's interesting because there's actually a study that shows that there are different types of fear for entrepreneurs and some are useful and some are not useful. And the one that you're talking about, I can't remember if it's fear of failure it's definitely linked. I know that one is definitely um, opportunity cost is, is a, actually a positive fear to have, which is, you know, if this, I'm doing this because I did, I turned down, let's say that job at PwC, and that's like a motivator. Yeah. Whereas I think the, the unhelpful fears are more around fears about your ability to execute the thing, or, you know, am I the right person to do this or something? Those are unhelpful fears, but then it was, yeah. So fear is I think a natural part of starting Let's go into some of the more practical stuff. So I think the crowdfunder is very interesting and I think super useful for people who are listening. So these are my figures. Tell me if these are wrong. But I think you did a first crowdfunding in 2017. Yeah. And you raised 100K in 35 minutes. Yeah. And then 300K in less than 24 hours.
1: 290 in two days. Two twenty four okay. So, so than 24 hours. All right, scrap the last bit. 48 hours.
0: 290 in, in two days. should have said yes. <laughs> Just roll with it, man. So that's the first one. That's 2017. That's literally two, two years after you started, which is in business terms, not very long time.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: How on earth did you do it?
1: Okay, so a few things. One, you have to fill a lot of the, the pipe before you launch the crowdfund. So when I launched the crowdfund on that morning, I knew where 80 grand was going to come from. And I had a feeling that we would get to the 100 very quickly. Secondly, it's about creating the fear of missing out as soon as possible. So what a lot of people do is they've got a money-raising target and they make that their target, and that's the public target. But what I always recommend to people is set your target at a level that you know you'll hit very quickly because that will mean that you are – more likely to raise your actual target quicker because fear of missing out kind of kicks in because before, before you hit the target, people have this thing of like, oh, I'll see if they I'll see if they hit the target and then I'll put money in. Three, speak to as many people as you can. Speak to your, to your customers. We are fortunate that a lot of our consumers also had a bit of money. All of our investors in that first round were consumers.
0: In terms of generating traffic to the launch so, or to the page, do you have any tips for anyone who's looking to do the same?
1: Just like utilize the network. And I guess we were fortunate because we'd been running the business for a wee while. We had a mailing list. I sent, I think, about 100 people on new branded jars with a handwritten card saying we we're going to raise. They obviously told all their friends. Somewhat selectively went for coffees with all the people who I thought would be interested in putting a bit, a bigger check-in. <laughs> what would usually happen is that would then generate traffic from the platform. But what ended up happening was we hit the target so quickly that I think the platform really even registered because it was all from our community.
0: And one other question I asked actually someone who joined the last launch pad. And one of the other things that they were keen to know is how do you keep momentum going throughout the campaign?
1: Yeah. So it's interesting. There's like a chat room, which you should monitor daily, be on the chat room. A really good thing to do that I've never done, but if I was to ever do it again, would do is I would have with your, with your kind of pre-filled pipe, I would get some of them to invest at the start. And then I would say, hold off until maybe three, four days in when the lull comes and get them to come in. Anything you can do to stay in the top three of the page is useful. And to stay there, you, you need to be raising like 10, 15 grand a day.
0: To so basically utilize your network as much as possible and plan.
1: Yeah, and your, and your consumers. Because like the whole thing about crowdfunding, and the thing that's so amazing about it is it enables consumers who would in no way be able to get involved in something like this a chance to. That's why product businesses really can lend themselves to crowdfunding.
0: People suggest Manny Life in Guardian articles. Joe Wicks gave an endorsement. So did Ella Mills of Deliciously Ella. We've sort of talked about this already, uh, that it was organic, um, at least in the, in the large part. But what is the secret to reaching people with big followings?
1: All three of those people, well, the Guardian, I think the Guardian, we sent them, we sent them jars. But Joe and Ella, I've never met Joe. I've never sent him a jar. I'd love, I'd love to meet Joe I'd love to send him lots of jars. But he speaks about the product because he loves it. And Ella, and Ella, and Matt—they're both great people. When when she had her delis, we used to supply her delis. I think we started supplying her delis. I think she was already eating the peanut butter because she found it in like a swanky shop.
0: You are the exclusive peanut butter supplier to HelloFresh, Gusto, and Mindful Chef. This time last year, I saw in an article you'd sold over a million. How's that looking now?
1: More than that, it's it's, it's great. Yeah, how we got that. Business is a really great story. Gusto called me up when we were a team of two in late 2017 and one of their suppliers let them down and they needed 9,000 mini pots in nine days. It took us a day to decide. It took us three or four days to get a load of mini pots shipped from Belgium and find a kitchen. In two nights, we packed 9,000 mini pots and yeah, secured the business from that.
0: You also said that... The story of deep roast is a good one.
1: Okay. What yeah. happened? When we were in the kitchen, and you know how I always used to obsess about keeping people entertained. So in one of those attempts to keep them entertained, we forgot the peanuts were in the oven. So we burnt the peanuts. And it was at a time where like, we were pretty hard up and I didn't really want to throw it out, but thought we were going to have to. But we thought we'd blend it and have a, have a try just in case. And we tried it and we were like, holy shit, this is actually really, really good. So we all kind of sat in a circle and tried to think of a nice name for burnt peanut butter, landed on deep braced. The first ever deep braced jars were our old white jars with black kind of indelible marker, handwritten deep braced. It's pretty unbelievable. Like that product, which obviously honed since, is still the only peanut butter to ever win three great taste stars. Every major brand in the UK has launched their version of off the back of a few mates. Fucking around in the kitchen, which is pretty cool.
0: How does it feel when like competitors launch similar products to yours?
1: It depends how I guess. Ultimately, it's a big compliment. The, the kind of aggro depends on how much it's like their version of, which is great, and how much of it is just like a clear lift. And we've, ch- we've changed the category. We've like created a new dimension of peanut butter, which is, which is ultimately really good for our retailers. and that's something we want to kind of
0: continue to do so it sounds like manny life is built really on a kind of combination of community hard work opportunism in the best way so when opportunities come up you know you're quick to act and and you and you make the best out of things that things that are kind of going wrong what other tips would you give someone who's thinking of starting a side project so whether it's peanut butter whether it's a Food business or product business. Is there anything that you learned that you think would be useful for other people to know?
1: The best advice I could give, on the condition that you're sure you're not barking completely at the wrong tree, is just keep going. There's been a lot of luck in Manny Life's kind of journey, but we put ourselves in those situations by just keeping going. Yeah, that's like probably the number one. Other one is, and this is such a cliche, surround yourself with people who are better or more experienced than you. Partly because it's great to learn from their experiences, and also just because there are very few other jobs where, like, you can call up the boss of a big company and have like a on-the-level chat with them. Because in every other dimension, you're like not qualified to have that conversation. Thirdly. Try and enjoy the journey. A few very wise people have all said the same to me, which gets quite emotional. It's like once it's done, that's all you have.
0: Who's what? He tells you that, like mentors, or
1: uh, yes, yeah, so I remember. So the, the most notable um one was the guy who, who set up Coco de Mama. I was doing a talk with him, and that's when he said. And I actually teared up when he when he said it, which is pretty crazy.
0: Just so I understand it, does he mean? you're aiming towards something and then at some point it will just be done.
1: Yeah, it's like if you're if you're constantly obsessed with like a target, let's say, and when you get there, you're onto the next target, when you get there, you're onto the next target. Ultimately the targets are they're not meanless because they're really good motivators, but like once you've hit them, they're gone. And once that and if you haven't enjoyed the journey or there's not like a different core fundamental driver, then it's not a very like wholesome existence. So Manny Life's version of that is like, so our goal is we want to be the number one natural peanut butter in two years time, but genuinely, and this sounds really cool, but genuinely we like go to work every day because we want to make people happy. We get loads of energy from reviews and from people sending in videos of like their kids eating our stuff or like them calling their dogs Manny. And and we're doing this thing at the moment called Manny Kids where it's like an activity book and at the end of the activity book, kids design their own label. And we have just had loads of these amazing drawings from, of, from like sent from really grateful mums. And that's the kind of stuff that like, that's the juice, that's the fuel.
0: It's a great note to end on. I think it's, I think it's so true. It's so easy to forget and you're constantly like chasing the next thing. Thank you, Stu, for joining the podcast.
1: No worries, Georgia. It's been an absolute pleasure.
0: If anyone wants to try Manny Life, where's the best place to go?
1: Our website, Sainsbury's, Waitrose, Amazon, Ricardo. or hopefully your local independent.
0: Perfect. I actually got it from my local independent and I had it today. Oh, fantastic.
1: Georgia, really good speech. It's been great. I've really enjoyed it
0: thanks so much for listening to the out of hours podcast if you want to check out more about out of hours head to outofhours.org and if you enjoyed this episode please do consider leaving it a review